Nobody defends flyover country more than Kentucky's own Senator Mitch McConnell. He is the only congressional leader from outside of New York or California. On today's podcast, a very special guest, the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, joins us to discuss why middle America is mad as hell and how that could spell disaster for Democrats. All that, plus Mitch McConnell's favorite place on earth, outside of the Senate floor. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. Well, thanks for being with us on the Flyover Country podcast. I'm Scott Jennings, your host, and today it's quite an honor for us to have Senator Mitch McConnell in the studio with us, the longest serving senator in Kentucky history, the longest serving Senate Republican leader of all time. And at the conclusion of this term as leader, plus a few more days, uh, you'll become the longest serving uh, Senate leader in American history. Leader, thanks for being with us today. Glad to be here, Scott. So I want to start, frankly, with just the news of the day, uh, which is the cost of living in America. Uh, The October inflation numbers came out. It was a total blowout. You've been traveling Kentucky the last couple of days. I was curious to know, uh, what are you hearing from people about the cost of living in America? And are you as stunned as many of us are about Joe Biden's White House apparently not believing this is a big deal? Well, they're clearly not in touch on the subject. Um, Inflation is raging. 6.2% increase in the cost of living over this time last year. Wages are not keeping up with that. Uh, Wage growth about 2.2% below January. In other words, we're going backward. Wage, whatever wage increases there are, not keeping up with inflation. It's the biggest issue in the country. And they don't want to acknowledge that because to acknowledge that means that the American Rescue Plan, the $2 trillion they lavished on the country on a party line basis back in the spring is the principal driver of this. They can't admit that because then they bring into question what they want to do yet again, which is a couple of trillion more in tax increases, this reckless tax and spending spree that they may be able to pass some version of in the House next week and ultimately will come down <clears throat> to Joe Manchin and or Christian Christian, uh, Christian Cinema in the Senate. Are you um, surprised that uh, and there, it's not like there weren't a number of people warning the Biden people about inflation. I mean, Larry Summers was in, uh, was warning them early this year about it. Uh, not only have they dismissed it, but they attacked Summers. And now uh, Biden's wrestling with a serious political problem. Why do you why do you think it is that they were so quick to dismiss concerns from people even within their own party? Because they were driven by an ideological mission. Joe Biden may have won the nomination, but Bernie Sanders won the war over what today's Democratic Party is. So this was an ideological mission, unrelated to what the country needed. We didn't need to do this. And we had the pandemic last year. We wrestled with that on a bipartisan basis. We spent an enormous amount of money. But as you turn the corner going into the new year, We didn't need to keep doing that. We had three vaccines that worked. The economy was beginning to come to life again. In fact, that started in the summer of 2020. While the coronavirus was still 
uh, without treatment. So um, <clears throat> today's Democratic Party, Scott, is the party of Bernie Sanders. Well, let me let me just jump to your assessment of Joe Biden's presidency. You've obviously made your position on his ideology pretty clear. You have considered him a friend in the past. You served with him in the United States Senate for a long time. He campaigned as a moderate, although I know uh, I heard you say many times he's a lot of things, but he's he's no moderate. He's clearly proven that um, political assessment of Joe Biden so far. Has he done about what you thought or has even uh, has he surprised you at all on, on just how far left he's been willing to go? Actually, I wasn't surprised. Uh, you, you talked about Biden personally. He's a really nice guy. We are friends. Um, this is not a personal assessment of his of his uh, character or personality, but he was never, never a moderate. He simply put the label on himself, which makes sense. Back in the primary for president, if you're running against Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, there's not much of a lane <laughs> over on the left. So... To decide to run as a moderate, and uh, but no, I don't think he was philosophically uncomfortable with uh, all the stuff that they've been rolling out. <clears throat> it's Bernie Sanders' vision. Bernie's been on board. I'm sure he feels good about it. And the the problem they have is the American people don't like it. I mean, we we, <laughs> we had Virginia, we had New Jersey. Now Virginia had other issues. We had a great candidate for governor. That certainly was a important factor in a state that Biden carried by 10 points going uh, Republican. But in New Jersey, where Republicans are simply unable to put on a campaign, they have not, not money to do it, the Republican candidate for governor almost wins. A truck driver spends 150 bucks, beats the state Senate president. What was that about? People of New Jersey big blue state, Biden carried by 16 points, are mad as hell at this administration, what it's doing. And the only way they could take it out was to go to the polls and vote because New Jersey happened to have been having an election like, uh, a couple of weeks ago. So it's your contention that that big parts of the Biden agenda are unpopular, and that was manifested itself in the uh, election results. But one thing he did get done was the infrastructure bill which you voted for and has become a bit of a hot potato on the right because of the, the 13 Republicans in the House who voted for it. You've been out driving around this week, meeting with constituents, including up in Northern Kentucky, where they are in desperate need of some of some bridge work. I was uh, curious to know how you're viewing the infrastructure process now in light of everything that's happened on Build Back Better and Joe Biden's overall political standing. and. Wanted some feedback from you on on your vote and why you thought it was the right vote and how you're viewing that in light of the rest of his presidency. Yeah. Well, infrastructure is something we needed, unlike all the rest of it they're trying to do. 75% of the American people think infrastructure is a good idea. The last two administrations tried to pull it together and didn't. And um, my view was, why don't we do what the country actually needs? And this infrastructure bill was simply written by a bipartisan group of Republicans and Democrats in the Senate, it's a completely separate measure, a separate bill about infrastructure. I thought it was good for the country and good for us politically and the right thing to do. And just the way I predicted, that's the way it turned out. The good part's now passed and gone to the president for signature, and they're stuck with the rest. Initially, they wanted the two together because the new infrastructure was more popular than the rest of it. 
our strategy was to separate it out. Think of it this way. Separate the sugar from the spinach. Pass the sugar, leave them with the spinach. And that's what they've got now, and they're having one hell of a hard time passing it, just like I predicted they would. They may get there sooner or later, but they're having an awfully difficult time. What do you predict about <coughs> the spinach, as you call it now? Uh, Democrats are having a, a rough time. Uh, I think there's a lot of curiosity about the process now um, and where this bill might be headed. Some thought about this being pushed off until the uh, next year uh, after January the 1st. Give us your uh, your crystal ball on where you think they might be headed or if, are they headed anywhere at all? Well, the, the few moderates that are left in the Democratic Party, they're not many, can see their seats going away next year. These are seats that could go either way. They're swing districts. They're the seats that made Pelosi the speaker or, or could make it uh, the next speaker a Republican. And um, they're now in the position of trying to decide what's more important here for me to get this bill passed and commit political suicide or stop it altogether. <clears throat> um, whatever the House does is irrelevant. The final bill is going to be written in the Senate and it will be written by two people, Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema. 50-50 Senate, everybody has to be in line to pass it. A Biden, uh, uh, Manchin, to his credit, is talking about inflation and questioning, I think, whether this needs to be done at all. The single biggest favor he could do for the country would be to defeat the whole thing. That would take a lot of courage, and uh, we'll see whether he's willing to go that far. So to make sure I, I hear you correctly, as us uh, political viewers out here are watching this unfold, maybe <clears throat> pay less attention to what's happening in the House and pay more attention, maybe all of our attention, to what <clears throat> Joe Manchin decides to do, if he decides to do anything at all. Yeah, the House bill will come over, Schumer will offer a substitute, and the substitute will be written by Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. If there is no substitute, it will mean that neither of them got on board. So Manchin is calling for a pause. I think that's a good idea. more people learn about this, the less they like it. And um, I think we've got a pretty clear indication of what the electoral environment's going to look like a year from now. Let me just ask before we wrap up this segment um, about middle America. You've sometimes described yourself as the, the center for middle America. Uh, you occupy a unique geographical position in the Senate and congressional leadership altogether. I was wondering if you could sort of walk us through your thinking on that, maybe take us inside the room for some of these deliberations and talk about whether you feel a special burden to make sure that flyover country, middle America, isn't forgotten as these policy debates unfold in Washington. Yeah, I've said frequently that for congressional leaders, I'm the only one not from New York or California. And uh, I do think that Democratic administrations t uh, tend to tilt toward the coast and to ignore the, the center of the country. A good, a good example of that, my wife was Secretary of Transportation during the previous administration. What she noticed in looking at these discretionary grants that had been um, put out under the uh, during the Obama years is that they were they were tilted to the high population areas uh, along the coast. So she tried to rebalance it to make sure Middle America was not <clears throat> ignored. So I think um, 
you know, if you look at the House of Representatives <clears throat> based strictly on population, uh, the big states are in a very dominant position. But the United States Senate is a, comp a compromise they made at the beginning of the country. Every state gets two senators. And so we look out for rural America, and my job as Senate Republican leader is to make sure that's, that occurs. All right, Mitch McConnell, we'll be back with you in just a moment. We're going to discuss some of your favorite moments from your past campaigns. Thanks for being with us on the Flyover Country podcast. Welcome back to the Flyover Country podcast. I'm Scott Jennings, honored to be in studio today with Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. We've been talking a little bit about news of the day in Washington, but I wanted to turn our attention to the past uh, and talk about one of your favorite topics, uh, your re-election campaigns and, and your first campaign. So one of my favorite topics too. I want to start about uh, talking about your victory in 2020. I think a lot of the 2020 campaigns were overshadowed by the, the presidential campaign, but it was uh, a significant win for you in Kentucky, given that the opponent you had, Amy McGrath, uh, had more money than any opponent you've ever had by a large factor. I was wondering if you wanted to reflect on your 2020 campaign, uh, setting aside the, the presidential race entirely, and just talk about that race, how unique it was, and and uh, how sweet it was to rack up such large margins on election night. Well, I felt I, when, when she filed and raised $5 million in 24 hours, I thought, oh my goodness, this is going to be something. And sure enough, in the end it was. She spent $40 million more than I did. and uh, But fortunately, I wasn't underfunded, and I was able to get my message across. And uh, <clears throat> but it certainly gets your attention when you're outspent by forty million dollars. So I'm uh, grateful to the people of Kentucky for uh, not being terribly persuaded by all of that excess. We've seen a lot of these Senate races become dramatically more expensive, and Democrat <laughs> Senate candidates seem to have more money than they can spend. Several of them, even the losing candidates, end their campaigns with millions of dollars in the bank. Is your view of money and campaigns evolving at all in terms of its overall determinative quality? I mean, in the past, we would think if somebody spent $40 million more than you did, you, you wouldn't have a great chance. But that's obviously not the case for you or even some of your other colleagues who, uh, who live through these kinds of onslaughts. Yeah, I think we're in a really good place in the country right now on campaign finance. <clears throat> a lot of people are participating. Much of this money on both sides is coming from small donors. <clears throat> Almost none of these races are being determined now on the basis of who spends the most. In fact, in my party, the last two or three cycles when we've won races, we've been outspent. <clears throat> so I think um, it's a good indication of the level of interest and participation. Uh, we had the highest turnout last year since 1900. So people are into politics. <clears throat> They're contributing to candidates that they favor. And uh, I think we're in a really good place on campaign finance right now. You uh, you raise an interesting point about <clears throat> political engagement. And we have more donors, small dollar than ever before. We have more voter participation than ever before. Yet a principal Democrat argument these days uh, is that our democracy is crumbling before our very eyes <laughs> and, that, and that it's going to go away within the next uh, few days if we don't pass uh, sweeping uh, bills at the federal level. I uh, was wondering if you thought perhaps your Democratic colleagues were overreading 
uh, this issue a little bit uh, for their own personal benefit. Oh, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> the, the American democracy is not broken and doesn't need fixing. Uh, we certainly don't need a federal takeover of how we conduct our elections. Uh, they've been trying to do that all year long with what they call a voting rights bill. And now they're trying to do it under the guise of the Voting Rights Act, which, by the way, has been reauthorized well up into 10 years from now. It's still on the books. It's against the law to <clears throat> discriminate against people on the basis of race. 94% uh, of people in the country think it's easy to vote. Uh, this is a solution in search of a problem. Um, so we've been voting down those proposals. They're not necessary. There's no, no evidence that anybody in America, in any state, is being denied the right to vote on the basis of race. Let me uh, go back to your campaigns for a moment. Before yeah. 2020, you've had a lot of interesting, <clears throat> you've had a lot of interesting moments uh, in your races. We'll go back to 1984. Everyone knows about the Hound Dogs, the most famous political ads of all time. But I'm not sure everybody knows some of the backstory uh, in that the polling that you had access to in 1984 showed you down fairly late in the race, 30, 40 points. I was wondering if you might want to reflect on 1984. Hound dogs aside, when, when you think about that race, what stands out to you? <laughs> the, the meeting, I was county judge in Jefferson County at the time, a meeting in the courthouse with my consultant, who subsequently became quite famous, Roger Ailes, who start, started uh, uh, Fox News. We were down 30 points in July, and I looked at Roger and I said, Roger, is this race over? He looked back at me and he said, well, I've never seen anybody this far behind this late win, but I don't think it's over. He was a tough competitor. He did come up with <clears throat> the now famous or infamous, depending upon your point of view, uh, <clears throat> bloodhound ads. And we managed to eke it out by about one vote a precinct. And, um, but that was, that was a, <clears throat> a really tough moment, uh, getting up and going out and campaigning every day and trying to act like you're going to win when you don't feel like you are requires a good bit of uh, acting, shall I say. In that campaign calendar, <clears throat> when did you actually feel like it might be within reach? Within the last uh, 10 days, uh, we were tracking, uh, polling every night, and finally it began to close. I never had a track that had me ahead. But oddly enough, um, I was the only challenger in the country. It was an unusual year. Morning again in America. Reagan is getting sailing to re-election. But nobody was mad at anybody. So not many incumbents of either party lost. I ended up defeating the only Democratic incumbent senator in the whole country, even though you would have thought we'd had a great day. Uh, and it wasn't easy. <clears throat> One vote a precinct. Um, in fact, we had a two-week re-canvas after the election just to make sure I had still won. Uh, I want to skip ahead to 2008. Um, I was with you quite a bit in that campaign and uh, spent a good chunk of October in a bus uh, with you and the rest of the campaign team. My recollection is uh, that the country just felt off the rails because of the financial uh -huh. crisis. And for Republicans, John McCain's campaign was essentially collapsing nationally. And uh, speaking of tracking polls, you know there were some there were some nail biting mornings picking those up in 08. I was uh, curious to know if you reflect on that campaign at all, because in my mind, uh, 
it was mid to late October, and it was mm. it was uh, certainly um, up in the air about how how this was going to break. Yeah, everything felt uh, felt everything felt bad. <clears throat> the height of the Iraq War, the financial meltdown about six weeks before the election, and you know I I was leader of my party. We were in the minority. I was leader of my party in the Senate, <clears throat> involved in what was immediately labeled the bank bailout uh, uh, bill. And um, yeah, I mean, I was right right in the middle of tr trying to keep the economy from going down. So <clears throat> yeah, it was, it was a stressful situation. I was self-funding opponent, had plenty of money. And um, yeah, there were plenty of Maylock's moments during that closing campaign. Yeah, I think I've said this to you before, but I'll, I'll say it again. I, I've never seen anyone throw a campaign on, on his or her shoulders the way you did um, uh, going on a bus tour throughout the last essentially three weeks of October and uh, doing 60 to 70 stops and, and watching you carry the campaign in the face of a spending onslaught. I mean, everybody was in here uh, because they thought they had Mitch McConnell on the ropes. And oh, yeah. There were New York Times reporters following us around Kentucky. Yeah, they were there to get the big story that the Republican leader of the Senate was going to go down. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was quite a year. I, I was in Owensboro, and I looked up, and there was Carl Holtz. Mm -hmm. And for your listeners, Carl Holtz is kind of the premier uh, senior reporter for the New York Times. I said, Carl, what are you doing in Owensboro? He said, well, you know, I'm just here to pick up what might be happening. Yeah, it was a it was a strange year. Also, for me, 2014 was a strange year because just the same way you had mm. media attention in 08, we had even more media in Kentucky in 2014. Every news reporter uh, who has ever thought about covering politics found uh, himself or herself in Kentucky. Yet the race was never really that close. She ran against Allison Grimes, who was the secretary of state in Kentucky. Republicans were on their way to a good year, although I'm not sure the polling picked it up uh, quite in time. Uh, how bizarre was it to be followed around by these hordes of reporters all the time in a race in which I never really thought you were all that seriously threatened? Well, I mean, they were here before Grimes. Uh, just to refresh everybody's memory, I had a primary against Matt Bevin, who ended up subsequently becoming governor the next year, a pretty credible guy with a lot of money. <clears throat> and he was sort of the Tea Party candidate. And this was the rise of the, of the, of the Tea Party, that faction within the Republican Party that thought we just didn't fight hard enough. And um, they were interested in taking me out as well. So I had a spirited primary. Fortunately, it ended well. I ended up winning the primary by 25 points. Uh, but then I had a spirited general as well against uh, Allison Grimes, the Secretary of State. And you're right, they were all in here all along. But um, in the end, I ended up winning by 15 points. And uh, so all's well, it ends well, but uh, yeah, when you get that kind of attention, when you <clears throat> just as soon not have it, it uh, gets your gets your attention. Do you find it uh, strange, your position as described by others, depending on who is saying it and when? At various times, you've been too conservative, <laughs> you've been too liberal. Yeah. For Democrats, you've been uh, you know too helpful to a president, or you've been too obstructionist, and uh, it's... It's been it's it's interesting for us to who know you to watch uh, all these different people describe you based on their own position in the universe, but not really stopping to re to ask themselves maybe it's them that are moving and not you. 
Well, when you're when the, you're the leader of your party in the Senate, um, you've got several responsibilities. Uh, I think one is occasionally to try to deliver a result on a bipartisan basis that's important for the country. And then other times when the other side is doing something you're absolutely convinced is the wrong thing for the country and you fight like heck. So <clears throat> some people would look at that and say, inconsistent. I would look at it and say, look, uh, we don't get sent here to just make a point all the time. We, we also need to, to make a difference. And the American people know that we have big differences, but particularly when they give you close government or divided government, I think they're saying, okay, but don't you agree on anything? And the truth of the matter is, <clears throat> we do. And I thought infrastructure <clears throat> recently was a good example of something that could and should be done on a bipartisan basis. And there were people on my, on my right in my party who said, oh, you're doing something with Joe Biden. Well, my view was it wasn't about Joe Biden. It was about the long-standing need the country needed to address infrastructure. Let me uh, give you a chance to walk through the Senate map for 2022. I think it's going to be a good environment for Republicans. But uh, we did get some recruiting news this week out of New Hampshire that may have set you back. I was curious to know how you're viewing the map right now, how you feel about the races and the environment and the chance for you to become majority leader again. Well, the, the map is fine. The atmosphere is going to be very, very good. I, I don't see any way this administration becomes popular within a year, given the hole they're in. So it's going to be a good year to be a Republican. The, the thing we need to avoid is nominating candidates who can't appeal to a general election audience. And so we're going to have to keep a close eye on the primaries that are developing in various Senate races around the country and make sure that we have a nominee who can actually win. The majority is going to be determined in the following states, Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Ohio, Missouri, Nevada, and Arizona. We're close, 50-50. I know what a real minority looks like. After Barack Obama, I only had 40. It took us six years to climb out of that hole. We're close, but we need to finish the job. A lot of folks think the best pickup opportunity for Republicans is in Georgia, where obviously uh, Republicans lost two seats in January. Um, what do you think about Herschel Walker so far? I think he's going to be a good candidate. Uh, he, he's not only, of course, had a marvelous early life as a football star, but uh, I think he's going to be a, a political all-star as well. And the Georgia race, I think, begins very close already. All right, Mitch McConnell's our guest on the Flyover Country podcast. When we come back, the famous lightning round. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Flyover Country podcast. I'm Scott Jennings. In studio with us, the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, the longest serving uh Republican leader in uh, Senate history and uh, soon to be, hopefully, the longest serving leader of either party in U.S. history. Wanted to wrap up the show uh, today, Senator. Uh, again, thank you for being here by talking a little bit about um, your old days as county judge executive oh of goodness. Jefferson County, Kentucky, Louisville, one of the most Democratic areas of your home state. But back in 
those days, it had a Republican county judge executive. It was like the president or the mayor of the county, dominated by the biggest urban area. You appointed the first black police captain in the city's history. Uh, during your first four years of being county judge, a third of all new hires in county government were African-Americans, overrepresenting the Louisville population at the time. You've been very progressive on civil rights issues and uh, on and very, I think, outspoken about what Republicans need to do on race issues in this country. I was wondering if you think about those days as county judge, what you did when you had the power to do something and where you think the country is on uh, racial reconciliation today. Well, going back to those days briefly, we were uh, sued. Uh, the previous county judge was sued. Um, police department was sued for engaging in discriminatory uh, tactics. We took a look at the lawsuit, I took a look at the evidence, decided we were guilty, and went and entered into a consent decree that basically put the um, police department under uh, a hiring regime to try to break up the good old boy system that had kept African Americans from getting in the police department and from advancing in the police department. So um, I decided not to fight the suit. I thought we were guilty. We ought to settle it and move on. Um, I think it made a big difference. At that time, it made the Fraternal Order of Police pretty angry, and they opposed me in my re-election. It almost took me out. <laughs> but we've come a long way since then. And um, just to give you an example, a friend of yours and mine, Daniel Cameron, uh, is the Attorney General of Kentucky, first African-American um, elected in, in his own right, the statewide office. Um, I think we've come a long way uh, over the last uh, 40 years in so many different ways. And um, the country ought to be proud of it. There are others who seem to be fixated with the notion that somehow this is a racist country. I don't see it. I, I'm sure there are some racists in America. After all, we have 330 million people. But I think we've made remarkable progress and ought to be proud of it and talking about it in a positive way. It is pretty remarkable that the standard Democratic uh, political uh, debate tactic these days <clears throat> is if you don't vote for our candidate or don't support our position, it makes you a racist. I agree with you that we've come a long way. How harmful do you think it is for uh, race relations in this country for one political party to essentially argue that half the country is racist by simply existing? I think it's outrageous. And that's, you're right, that's what we have to endure in the Republican Party these days. Uh, people will slap the racist, racism term on almost any kind of debate. And it's, um, I think it's been particularly perplexing in this whole issue of voting rights. You had the President of the United States calling the new Georgia voting uh, law Jim Crow. Nobody read it. If you read it, you'd know that nothing nothing in the new Georgia voting law to um, discriminate against people on the basis of race. Um, African-American turnout was dramatically up last year. All turnout was dramatically up last year. As I said earlier in the program, I think we had the highest turnout since 1900. So um, America's come a long way. I think we ought to celebrate it and, uh, and be proud of it, not suggesting there aren't still residual problems, but we've come a very long way. 
Let me ask you about crime. Uh, I think the issue of crime in the elections last week was a big deal to voters. I think we're seeing an explosion of violent crime around the country. That is happening here in Louisville as well, uh, a community you once led. As we sit here, Louisville is on the verge of breaking its record for most homicides ever for the third time in the last five years. As a former leader of Louisville and of this county, how does that make you feel to see the community so um, taken up with uh, with these homicide rates? Well, it's sad to see, and certainly the solution to that is not fewer police officers. I mean, I think we had a referendum on that in Minneapolis um, a little over a week ago, and uh, out in Seattle as, as well. I mean, <laughs> the solution to dealing with more crime is certainly not to have fewer police officers. All right, Mitch McConnell, you've been a good sport, uh, but we're going to put that to the test here on the famous lightning round with the famous one answer or short answer, rapid fire questions to close the show. What is your favorite memory of the Trump years? Uh, three Supreme Court justices. Today is Veterans Day. We're recording this on Veterans Day. Did you celebrate this uh, holiday with your father? I did years ago. He was a World War II vet. What are you better than 90% of people at? Is there something that you're better than 90% of people at doing? <laughs> I think I'm a good listener. You once wrote a book called The Long Game, but it ended before Donald Trump took office. Is Mitch McConnell secretly writing a follow-up, and is it going to be called The Long Suffering Game? <laughs> I'm not sure yet. Not sure. Okay. All right. Maybe uh, uh, book agents out there in our listening audience uh, take note. Uh, a lot of people look up to you as a mentor and seek out your advice. Can you name a mentor or two that you draw on for advice uh, or a sounding board in your job today? Well, in my early life, I think my role model was John Sherman Cooper, who was a senator from Kentucky in those, in those days. And uh, these days, uh, I have some really smart uh, colleagues that I listen to every week before making recommendations. And I'm thinking I'm probably not going to list any of them, but some of them are, uh, so I say, more. Uh, I listen to some of them more than others. Let's put it that way. <laughs> All right. Um, what book is on your nightstand right now? <clears throat> I just finished a story about a, a great Kentuckian, John Marshall Harlan, the great dissenter. Went to Center College on the Supreme Court for 30 years in the latter part of the 19th century. The sole dissenter in Plessy versus Ferguson, the one guy on the Supreme Court who got it right on race in the 19th century. What's the last movie you saw? <laughs> let, me, let, let, me, let me make it easier. What's your favorite movie? Uh, probably Saving Private Ryan. It's Thanksgiving. What is Mitch McConnell's table look like? What's the food you can't live without on your Thanksgiving table? Oh, it's the same thing everybody else has. Uh, turkey, dressing, you got it. If you can find a turkey this year, yeah. you might have to a default to some Well, and if you can afford one. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, I'm going to put you in a time machine and go back to 1984 and we find out that Mitch McConnell came up just short on election day. Mm -hmm. What would you be doing today if that had happened? I might have been a very unsuccessful lawyer in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm not sure. <laughs> You've seen a lot of uh, turnover in the U.S. Senate in your career. A lot of folks have come and gone. 
I was curious to know if there's uh, two or three of your former colleagues that you keep up with and consider close friends on a regular basis. <clears throat> yeah, Phil Graham from Texas, I see a lot. He left 20 years ago and uh, he and I were the freshman class in January of 1985 mm -hmm. and he was ready for prime time and I wasn't. <laughs> All right. Uh, you watch some cable news from, from time to time. Um, is there a pundit or a host that you mute when you see them come on your TV screen? <laughs> well, let me tell you who I admire the most. Uh, I like Brett Barrett's special report, and I like Brett Hume's commentary. Other than the floor of the United States Senate, where is your favorite place to be? Uh, Cardinal Stadium during football season. Hey, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, thanks for being with us on the Flyover Country podcast today. Thank you, Scott. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Five-star reviews will help us keep making the content that you love. To find my latest television hits, columns, and other commentary, go to scottjenningsky.com. And you can also find me at Scott Jennings KY on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, make sure your seat backs and folding trays are in their full upright position. Cabin crew, please take your seats for landing and thank you for choosing Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. 